Went through Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. Today we're going to go through the rest of the chapter, verses 10 through 23. And we're going to take the opportunity of what Paul writes for us in the last part of this letter to look at uh, the hope and the promise that we have in Christ. So I, I mentioned earlier that today is the first Sunday of Advent. So the the Sundays preceding, the four Sundays preceding um, Christmas Day um, represent the Advent season. Advent is simply a word that means coming. So Advent, the celebration of Advent is the celebration of the coming of Christ. We're not a real, really a liturgical church. We don't follow the lectionary or anything like that in terms of the what we preach and teach on a weekly basis. But I think in some ways, um, from a non-denominational point of view, um, there are some things I think that are good that we may not have taken advantage of before. And the season of Advent, I think, is one of those things, uh, because if you ask, depending on who you ask, for a lot of Christians, when you talk about the coming of Christ, the only thing they think about is the second coming. And all of our focus is what will be, what's going to happen, which is fine, which is great. But if we don't understand the only reason we have hope and promise and what will be and what's going to happen is because of what's already happened, that can affect the way we live our lives. It can affect the choices we make and, and, and the actions that we take. So let's read together these verses in Philippians chapter 4, verse, verses 10 through 23, and, and let's talk about this today. Verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus." Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So I want to focus on contentment. But I, I want to make sure that we understand what understand what contentment is. It takes great faith to learn contentment. It takes little fear to fall into complacency. Contentment is not complacency. To be complacent is not necessarily to be content. And to be content with whatever state you're in does not mean that you are necessarily complacent. To be content takes faith. To be complacent requires only fear. R.C. Sproul has a book titled, Everyone's a Theologian. The word theology has become a dirty word in many circles. Because when we hear the word theology, we think of these concepts that are over our head and that are too deep for us. And I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to think about that. But that's really not what theology is about. Theology is just a big word that simply means the study of God. And R.C. Sproul's book, Everyone's a Theologian, is simply this. Everybody, everyone has a theology. That's a fact. The question is, do you have a good theology, a biblical theology, or is your theology something of your own fancy and imagination that, that you have created? What's it grounded in? What's it founded in? And this is an important question because our theology shapes our life, not just sometime, but all the time. Your theology doesn't just shape your life on Sunday morning or where you choose to go to church. Your theology shapes your life all the time, whether you realize it or not. The decisions you make, the things you do, the things you don't do, the decisions you refuse to make. You know, people sometimes, the decision they make is that I'm not going to decide anything. I'll just be complacent, but I'll call it contentment. No, it's not contentment, it's complacency. It's apathy. Your theology shapes that. Because many times we make our choices based on fear, and not based on faith. So our theology shapes our life all the time. Our knowledge of God or our lack thereof shapes our thoughts, shapes our actions, and ultimately determines our character. Because Paul understood what was and what is, he had faith in what would be. Did you get that? Because Paul understood what was and what is, he had faith in what would be. This is how he could say, I have learned whatever state I am in to be content. This is the faith the Bible calls us to. So this is the faith that God calls us to. This is our faith in Christ. So I want to talk about this today, but I want to 
take you back to the Old Testament. The season of Advent marks this beginning of our celebration of the coming of Christ. His coming, past, present, and future. And I mean that, past, present, and future. Christ came historically. He was born a baby in a manger. Christ is present right now. How many of you realize that the moment you are born again is the moment Christ came to you and revealed himself in you and caused you to be gloriously born again and took up residence in you by the Holy Spirit? This is the Christ who has come, who is coming, who is present, and who will come again bodily, physically, one day. But we often look to that bodily, physical return, and we forget, or we fail to know and to understand the reality and the power of Christ with us right now, today. Amen? Had Christ not surely been born that night in Bethlehem, we would have no hope and no certainty of his coming again one day. So we must seek the truth that will shape our thoughts and our actions and ultimately our life. And who is that truth? Christ is that truth. He said just before his arrest, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let's look at Israel during a pivotal time in their history and the history of the world and the history of our faith. Let's go to the book of Jeremiah. We'll come back to Philippians, but let's go back to the book of Jeremiah. And I want to read you several scriptures from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 36 through 42. And now I'm going to give you a very glimpse, a short glimpse or a snapshot of what's happening here. There are certain scriptures that we may be very familiar with from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of them that everybody loves to have on their refrigerator or hanging somewhere on their wall. For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans of peace. To give you a good future and a good hope. It's a great scripture, but it's even better when we read it within the context from which it was from which it's quoted. When we read the entire letter Jeremiah writes to these captives, these exiles, encouraging them to look to, to trust in what will be. Now, I'm not going to read Jeremiah 29 to you. I'll let you do that. But I am going to read verse 
uh, 36 through 42 of Jeremiah 32 because I want to set up what I'm going to read to you from Jeremiah 33. So Jeremiah 32, let's begin in verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, Jerusalem, of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by, the fam- by famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart with one way and one way and they that they may fear me forever. Did you hear that? Then I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that will not turn away from doing them good but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. Now, in the next chapter, let's go to verse 10, Jeremiah 33, verse 10. And Jeremiah continues this theme on as he's writing here to these exiles. He's in the king's dungeon. He's in prison. He's not going out and telling people this. He's in prison, and the word of the Lord is coming to him in prison. And in verse 10 of Jeremiah 33... He says, thus says the Lord, again, there shall be heard in this place. He's talking about Jerusalem. There shall be heard in this place of which you say it is desolate without man, without beast in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who who will say, praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endures forever. Whenever the Bible talks about the bridegroom and the bride, you should pay attention because every time the Bible talks about that, it's giving us a type and a shadow. It's an allusion to the ultimate bridegroom and the ultimate bride, which is Christ and his church. And who has more reason to ultimately say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever if it is not the bride of the bridegroom, the church of the Lord Jesus. And of those who, who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return as at the first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place which is desolate, without man and without beast, and in all its cities, there shall again be a dwelling place of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. 
I don't have time to do this, but you can go back to Jeremiah's writing. You can go to the writings of Ezekiel. You can go to the writings of Isaiah. And, and, and God pronounces warning. He pronounces judgments on the shepherds who will not shepherd the people. Who will not, for the sake of God's glory, shepherd the people, but for their own well-being, for their own benefit. They don't do God's bidding, but they do their own bidding. And God is saying there is going to come a day when I will again restore shepherds and cause their flocks to lie down. The picture of flocks lying down is a picture of peace. It's a picture of safety. It's a picture of abundance. It's a picture. It's a healthy picture. It's not a dysfunctional picture. In the city's of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south, in the land of Benjamin, in the place around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, the flocks shall again pass under the hand of him who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Now, keep in mind, in Israel's history, when Jeremiah is writing this, Israel, the northern kingdom, has already been carried away captive. They've already been dealt with by the Assyrians. The Assyrians have been overtaken by the Babylonians. Jerusalem and Judah was this island that God protected, but their wickedness caught up with them. And now God has brought the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar came and he took away the captives. He let the city remain and now the jews refuse to obey god god says go to babylon plant vineyards plant orchards marry raise families pray for the peace of the city that you live in there in babylon and the the false prophet says no don't do that god's not going to make you stay there for 70 years don't do that jeremiah is a liar he's a false prophet we need to hold our ground. We need to rebel against the king because God is going to give us the victory. And you guys that are in Babylon, God's going to send you back here. And it's not going to be 70 years. It's just going to be a very short time. So hold out. Jeremiah says, no, those guys are the false prophets. This is the context of Jeremiah 29. Go home and read it. God says, no, I've caused this to happen. You are going to be carried away captive. You are going to be there for 70 years, but I've caused this to happen. And when the fullness of that takes place, then you're going to know. Then you're going to see my goodness. You're going to see the fulfillment. These are the false shepherds that are shepherding the nation that won't tell the people the truth, but instead tickle their ears and tell them lies and falsehoods that they want to hear because the truth was too difficult for them to hear. Because it was too difficult to speak. Because no one wanted to believe that that actually could be the truth. Except it was the word of the Lord. And this is what Jeremiah is saying. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. And here's what it is, verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David. Now, keep in mind, David is long past. Zedekiah was the last 
king that sat on the throne that was a descendant of David, who literally sat on the throne in Jerusalem, that was a descendant of David. Jeremiah is now prophesying about what is coming in the future. In those days, at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He, that branch, shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth, not just in Jerusalem, but in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Now I want you to hold your place there. Take your highlighter, your pencil, and underline that word, she. This is the name by which she will be called. Go back a few pages with me to Jeremiah chapter 25. And let's look at verse 30. I really want to read the whole chapter to you, but I'm not going to because I don't have time to. Verse 30, therefore prophesy against them all these words and say to them, the Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong place. It's Jeremiah 20, hold on, 23, 5, and 6. 25 is good too, but Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Let's read verse 4. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. You see, God is preaching a very consistent message here through Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper, a king, and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his Name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. In Jeremiah 23, verse 6, it says, This is his name by which he shall be called. Here's his name, the Lord our righteousness. In Jeremiah 33, verse 16, Jeremiah writes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and this is the name by which she will be called the Lord, our righteousness. You know what I see there? I see that he and she have the same name. When do do he and she have the same name? When the he and the she become one, and the two are no longer two, but they become one flesh. This is a picture right here in Jeremiah is a picture of Christ and his church. He speaks of the king who will come. He speaks of this city. We go to the book of Revelation. I don't have time to do it, but, but you can go to Revelation 21 and you see that John 
is shown a city that's called the bride of the lamb. Come and I will show you the bride of the lamb, the lamb's wife. And behold, I saw holy Jerusalem descending from heaven. Do you see? Do you see the promise? God says to Jeremiah, in the midst of of great destruction, in the midst of great turmoil, in the midst of everything that looks like anything but victory, have hope. There's coming a day. In those days, at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. Who is that branch? It's Jesus. What is Jeremiah prophesying about? He's prophesying about the coming of Jesus. Not the second coming, but the first coming. And and what is this branch going to do? He's going to execute judgment in the world. He's going to rule like a king. And how did that branch come? How did that king come? He came in a way that was anything But the way you and I would want to come if we were kings, bringing judgment to the earth. He came in the most unassuming, the most meek, the most humble way possible. He came as a baby who did not even have a place to be born, but had to borrow a manger, had to be born among the animals. Because no one would make room for him because he was just another baby. Do we really need another baby? Don't we have enough babies? Isn't isn't Jerusalem overpopulated? I don't have room for another baby. I've got a stall back here because I have some compassion on you that you can be born in. And here is this king that Jeremiah writes about who is going to come and judge the earth, born a little baby, a baby, who will rule the nations, a baby who is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, but he doesn't look like a lord and he doesn't look like a king and he doesn't look like he's going to rule anything. He's just just the baby of these poor peasant people. But he's the king. And thankfully there were those who had eyes to see. And ears to hear the truth. And the shepherds saw and they heard the angels. And they came and they worshipped the king. And the wise men. Within the first couple of years of the life of the baby Jesus. Travel from the east. And they follow a star. And they come to this baby boy and they worship him as a king. But there's nothing kingly about him. This is, this is who God points us to. This is the God who has come. This is the God who is present And we are just as guilty as those people who predated the birth of Jesus, who couldn't see and refused to hear the promise of God, but could only judge by what they saw 
and would only do things based on what they wanted themselves. So they ignored the word of the Lord and they did what was right in their own eyes because they had bad theology. (laughs) And that's the truth. Surely God's not going to make us live 70 years in Babylon. God, we don't have, we have no precedent in scripture of God ever doing that before. He's not going to do that. We have no precedent in scripture that God would ever be born as a baby. We have no precedent in scripture that tells us that, that God would be crucified on a cross. But yet, We've got a book full of scripture that foretold it. But, but what is it that we're looking for? What is it that we want to see? So as Paul wrote his letter to the churches, he was well-versed in the history of his nation. He was well-versed in the holy scriptures. And he was well-versed in the words of the prophets. For example, when Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians and penned the following words, he understood their significance as a Jew, but more importantly, he understood their significance as one trusting in Christ. So let's turn, uh, turn back to the New Testament and let's go to the book of Galatians. And let's read some really controversial things that Paul wrote in his day. So controversial that people sought to take his life. Now, the, the letter to the Philippians was written while Paul was in prison in Rome. The letter to the Galatians was written in the beginning of Paul's ministry. And as a result of the things that Paul wrote, for instance, in his letter to the Galatians, men in Jerusalem who were the same powers that be that oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus said, hey, this guy, Paul, who used to be one of us, He's causing trouble. We got to get rid of him. We need to wipe him out. We need to erase him from the face of the earth. And this actually is how Paul came to be imprisoned in Rome. He appealed to Caesar, and and, and the Romans actually protected Paul. The Romans saved Paul's life from the Jews who wanted to kill Paul, Paul who was a Jew. The problem was Paul's theology didn't line up with the conventional theology of the conventional Jew of the day. And so here's what Paul writes in Galatians 3.16, for instance. This got him into all kinds of trouble. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was... 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God, that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed, that is Christ, should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. And then he goes on and in verse 24, he writes this, therefore the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster 
to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, we cannot imagine how controversial that last statement was, how offensive that was to all the Jews hearing Paul write this to the Gentiles. You are all, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Not because you came from Abraham's loins, but because you put your faith in Jesus. And then he goes on. And he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither now Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You can't imagine how controversial those statements are that Paul made. Then Paul goes on. Let's continue into verse chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time had come, that's what we just read about in Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, in that day and at that time, God will raise up a branch to David. And he will judge the world. He'll judge the earth. He's a king that will rule. He'll have a wife. And they'll be known by one name, the Lord, our righteousness. When the fullness of time had come, Paul was living in that time. He saw the fullness that Jeremiah wrote about. We're living in a time when we can look back into the past and we know that fullness of time has come. Christ was born. Christ lived. Christ was crucified. Christ was buried. Christ was raised and ascended to the Father and received the kingdom. And Christ made this declaration. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. Preach the gospel. Preach the good news. What's the good news? Christ has come. We are living in that day. It's time for the shepherds to come. It's time for the sheep to dwell Safely, I'm not saying there's not war and there's not violence. I'm saying you as his sheep, you can dwell safely in him. You can dwell and have peace in him regardless of how many shooters or how many battlefields or how many terrorists there are doing what they do. You are safe and secure in Christ. They might be able to kill your body but they cannot take your life they might be able to make life miserable for you but they cannot take your joy if he is your joy they might try to disrupt your peace but if he is your peace 
They can't. They can't. Paul says, here is, here is the power of the gospel. Christ came to redeem those born under the law. That we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Do you realize the power of that truth? Do you realize the power of those words? You are no longer a slave. You are a son. You are an heir of God in Christ. And we want to take that theology, that truth, and we want to turn it into something so surface as that's going to determine what kind of car I drive and what kind of house I live in and what kind of watch I wear and what kind of shoes I wear. And the fancier my outer man is, the more blessed it must mean that I am. No. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Hey, I went to the garage sale and I bought for $5 a pair of shoes that I wouldn't even be able to afford at the shoe store. Did I buy them? Yes, I bought them. Do I like them? Yes, I like them. Because they're comfortable. But those $5 garage sale shoes that cost about $250 in the store add nothing to me. They don't mean anything in terms of my salvation and who I am in relationship to Christ. It just means I got a sweet deal because I was paying attention. What do we tell the people in Africa and Asia who are dying daily because of their faith in Christ, who live in abject poverty, who have nothing? Does this scripture apply to them? It absolutely applies to them. Because they understand what Paul the Apostle came to understand. It doesn't matter if I'm homeless, if I'm rich, if I'm poor, if I have a lot, or if I have nothing. See, Paul was not a victim. And he was certainly not a victim of circumstance. Paul was a victor. And he understood that his victory was in Christ. He wasn't complacent. He learned to be content because he came to realize that God does everything for his glory. God works in and through all things for his glory. Even the hard things. Even the messy things. Even the sinful things. Paul's theology wasn't shaped by his ethnic background or his religious tradition as a Jew. It was shaped by Christ who was revealed to him and in him by God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. It was shaped by the word of God that was put in his heart, he thought, for one reason, but Christ showed him that that word meant something very different 
than perhaps what he thought it meant. And so it must be for us today. Christ must be revealed in us by grace, through faith and the power of the Spirit, and by the Word. Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church at the end of his ministry while imprisoned in Rome. And he had long learned to be content. He had learned to trust in Christ. He learned to trust Christ in and through every situation and circumstance. Paul didn't come to this place in his faith by simply enduring one hardship after another. You can go and you can read what Paul writes about his life and his ministry how many times he was beaten, how many times he was stoned, how many times he was left for dead, how many times he was shipwrecked. I mean, if we want to compare war stories, I think the Apostle Paul is going to beat anybody here. But that wasn't Paul's point. He wasn't just trying to glorify all the hardship he'd been through. He didn't learn to be content because he went through so much hardship. He learned to be content because he put his faith in Jesus. It wasn't that Paul just learned to gut it up and make it through. Paul had a revelation of Christ. He knew who God was. He knew what God had promised. And he knew that his experience, good or bad, hard or easy, did not determine his faith. His experience does not determine his faith. Your experience does not determine your faith. This word determines your faith. You don't base your faith on your experience. You base your faith on what God has revealed to you in his word. What he has revealed to you in Jesus Christ. Your experience can affirm it. Your experience can also deny it. You realize that? Your experience can deny faith. Your experience can be such that you say, you know what? God wouldn't do this. Just like the Jews did in Jeremiah's day. God wouldn't do this. That's not faith, that's fear. Don't listen to that because that's not the word of the Lord. When in reality, it was the word of the Lord. Paul learned to look unto Jesus because Jesus alone is the author and finisher of our faith. That's what Hebrews 12, 2 teaches us. Paul looked to Jesus and Jesus looked beyond the endurance and the shame of the cross. Paul was looking unto Jesus because Paul understood that Jesus looked beyond the suffering and the shame of the cross for a joy that was set before him. Jesus did that looking to what was ahead. We do that today, not just looking to what was ahead, but looking to the reality that's behind us. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. He has poured out his spirit. You have in you, Christian, the spirit of the living God. You're not just looking to some hope that's future, that's not not reality now. You have a reality right now. You have a power right now. You have a reason to hope right now. You have a reason to believe and to trust and to be joyful and to rejoice always right now. Not because of what will be one day, but because of what is reality right now. In Christ. That's the power of the coming of Christ. Not just his second coming, that hasn't happened yet, but his first coming. But because the first coming 
took place. We don't doubt the second coming is going to take place. But what about the in-between? I live in between the first coming and the second coming. What do I do? You trust Christ. You take advantage, full advantage of the tangible, the real, the solid joys, the solid peace, the solid love that, that is as real as this pulpit right here. They're not fake. They're not mystical. They're not escaping our grasp. They're real. They're to be taken and, and, and grasped hold of and applied to our life. Because what we have in Christ is real right now. And we know it's real because he has come. Because we're living in the day, we're living past the day that Jeremiah writes about. The branch has come. He is ruling the earth right now. I hope you believe that. We're going to look more as we get farther into the Advent season. We're going to look at the prophecies of Isaiah that talk about a government and a peace that has no end to its increase. We're not waiting for it to start. It's here. It's increasing. The question is, can you see it? Can you feel it? Do you know it? Are you living in that reality? Our hope is not what we can see, but in what is not yet seen except by faith. There are things that we can see only by faith. Just like Jeremiah saw by faith, Abraham saw by faith. There are things we can only see by faith, but the fact that we can only see them by faith does not mean that they are not real. Israel in Jeremiah's day hoped for a day that was not yet visible except by faith. They looked to a Savior who was long promised but not yet come. We today as the church hope for a day that is not yet visible in one sense but yet very real and very present in another. We look to a Savior who is long promised and has indeed already come. Because Christ has come, we not only hope for what will be, but we have his promise fulfilled now in the present. Our joy is not only future, it is now, it's real, because Christ is now and Christ is real. If Christ is not our joy, then we are looking to lesser things to fulfill that joy. And we can and we should look And find joy in all things, but that joy in all things must flow from Christ. Christ who is our joy, who is our peace, who is our love, who is our all in all. Amen, church? So our knowledge of God is often not obtained purposefully. In our fallen nature... We have the knowledge of God, but no understanding and no desire for God. This is what Romans 3, 10 and 11 tell us. There's no one who seeks after God. There's no one who desires God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Often our desire is not really a desire for God, but a desire that God do something on our behalf. Are you hearing me? It's not that we really want God. We want God to do something for us. So God becomes our spiritual 911. And as soon as the emergency's over, then God goes back to where he was before. God in his grace will not allow, listen, God in his grace will not allow us to have a relationship with him based on what he can do for us. Our relationship with God can be based solely on who he is and what he has already done for us in Christ.
And this is what Paul is saying. What more can God do for me? I have learned to be content whatever state I'm in because he had a revelation of what God had already done for him in Christ. And he knew that God did all things for his glory. So he trusted. His contentment wasn't based on what God did, but who God is. We chant this mantra, oftentimes I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but we don't really understand what, what those words mean. What it meant in the life of the Apostle Paul was, was not that he could do impossible things if he tried and trusted hard enough. It meant that no matter what, in his faith in Christ, he would choose to be content because he had learned that Christ is sufficient and that God does all things for his glory. Paul sought the fruit that abounds to your account, is what he told the Philippians. Because he sought the glory of God above all things. And the more fruit we bear, the more the vine dresser, the more the Father is glorified, Jesus teaches us in John 15. Paul sought the glory of God above all things. So we must come to trust, even as Paul has come to trust, that God does all things and works all things for his glory. So we pray that God in his grace will teach us and we will learn to trust him and to be content in whatever state or whatever condition we find ourselves. And through that trust, may your fruit abound and may God be glorified. It doesn't mean that we become complacent in our condition. It means that we trust God in and through whatever our condition is. Let's stand. So I challenge you to trust him in all, no matter what, to learn of him as he teaches you through all things. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Lord, we serve a God and a Savior who is not future, but who is present, eternally present. That you have come, you are here, and you will come again. Give us the grace to trust you and to be those learning to be content in all things. Deliver us from complacency and fear and grant us faith to be content. Do this that you above all things would be glorified. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.